0: Hi, everyone. My name's Alex. I'm going to read the Bible for us. It starts on page 7 of your zines from Genesis 4, 1 to 16. Adam made love to his wife, Eve, and she became pregnant and gave birth to Cain. She said, with the help of the Lord, I have brought forth a man. Later, she gave birth to his brother, Abel. Now, Abel kept flocks and Cain worked the soil. In the course of time, Cain brought some of the fruits of the soil as an offering to the Lord. But Abel also brought an offering, fat portions from some of the firstborn of his flock. The Lord looked with favor on Abel and his offering, but on Cain and his offering he did not look with favor. So Cain was very angry and his face was downcast. Then the Lord said to Cain, why are you angry? Why is your face downcast? If you do what is right, will you not be accepted? I will be a restless wanderer on the earth, and whoever finds me will kill me. But the Lord said to him, Not so. Anyone who kills Cain will suffer vengeance seven times over. Then the Lord put a mark on Cain, so that no one who found him would kill him. So Cain went out from the Lord's presence and lived in the land of Nod, east of Eden. And the second reading is from James 4, 1-10. What causes fights and quarrels among you? Don't they come from your desires that battle within you? You desire but do not have, so you kill. You covet but you cannot get what you want, so you quarrel and fight. You do not have because you do not ask God. When you ask, you do not receive because you ask with wrong motives, that you may spend what you get on your pleasures. You adulterous people, don't you know that friendship with the world means enmity against God? Therefore, anyone who chooses to be a friend of the world becomes an enemy of God. grieve, mourn and wail. Change your laughter to mourning and your joy to gloom. Humble yourselves before the Lord and he will lift you up. This is the word of the Lord.
1: I'll take this one. (laughs) Great to be with you. My name is Rowan. If I haven't met you, And I'm here for a little while. I am the interim pastor, I think is my official title, um, as uh, the Church Hill continues to look for someone more permanently. So keep praying for that, it's really important. Um, so pray for Justin and the team here and the wardens as they make that decision. Um, we're going to be looking at Genesis 4, so keep it open, it's on page 7. And then there's an outline for you on the next page. But we're looking at the theme of resentment today. Listen to your resentment through the story of of Cain and Abel. What we'll do is we'll begin with the story. So the story starts with anger and it ends in murder. So the first stop of of the train, anger. Anger. Can lead to murder. Now, that's not to say that anger and resentment always lead to murder, but murder always usually starts with, with anger or resentment of some kind. And the events of this week are, are harrowing that resentment can take place and present itself in, in hideous behaviors. But even even as we look out there at at a a kind of a grotesque scale of that in the events of New Zealand, we need to think about our own hearts, that even in our own hearts, anger can lead us to all kinds of of silly behaviours. We can do dumb stuff, can't we? I certainly can. All coming from a place of anger and resentment. So it might just be helpful to start with to think about what is resentment. And by resentment, I mean... I mean, the bitterness that we can harbour, the emotional punishment that we can exact in our hearts against someone else. The bitterness that we harbour, the emotional punishment we exact in our hearts against someone else. It starts with anger. Sometimes it comes from jealousy or envy, but it starts there and then our heart hardens and we can set our our hearts to harden against others. We can't exactly hurt them publicly or physically, but we can hold them at bay in our hearts. We can resent them. Other times it might be that someone has done something to us and so therefore we have something against them. Or sometimes we can harbour resentment and be angry in our hearts against people because we think that they should have done something and that they didn't. Sometimes the target of our resentment and our anger is actually God himself. And so we're going to just unpack some of these scenes, particularly as we look at the story of, of Cain and Abel. But let me read you a quote. It's in front of the zines. It's by a Presbyterian minister. It's the bottom one there, Friedrich. He says this, of the seven deadly sins, anger, and think resentment as well, is po- possibly the most fun, to lick your wounds... To smack your lips over grievances long past, to roll your tongue, the prospect of bitter confrontation still to come, to savour to the last twosome morsel both the pain you were given and the pain that you were giving back. In many ways, it is a feast fit for a king. The chief drawback the chief drawback, is that what you are woofing down is yourself. The skeleton at the feast is you. It's got way with words, isn't it? But it is a scary thought. See, in the long term, resentment has precisely the opposite effect of what we hope. Over time, we think that we will somehow exact a punishment of some kind in our heart on someone, but actually, often it destroys ourselves. Resentment kills and it hollow hours, hollows out the resenter. And not the resented. So in today's story, we're going to examine an anger and a resentment in the story of Cain and Abel. You'll see three headings there. It's a story that mirrors life. We'll be looking at Genesis 4. We'll see how Jesus fulfills it and then take some lessons away from it. So the story that mirrors life, the story of Cain and Abel is on the heels of Adam and Eve. Adam and Eve, we saw last week, uh, rebelled against God in the sense that they wanted to be like him. And they took the fruit from the tree in a desire to be their own gods. And what we saw as a result was that there was a breakdown, a breakdown in relationship with God, but then with with one another, and then with creation itself. And they were expelled from the garden. And so we begin Genesis 4 in life outside the garden. And its story kind of mirrors the same kind of structure. So, So we meet outside the garden, and we read about two brothers. And their names tell us something of the story that's going to unfold. It's interesting. Cain's name means acquired. Acquired. So Eve says, With the help of the Lord, I have brought forth a man. So Cain came from the usual means, Adam and Eve. But here, it also says that, that God has brought forth a man that is with the Lord's help. See, God could have called it quits on humanity, but he's he's opening up the story. There's a new chapter. That's why Cain's name means means acquired. The story continues. God hasn't given up. And then interestingly, Abel's name means vapor or mist. I think he did a series in Ecclesiastes a few years ago, and it's the same word. It means vapor or mist. The idea of that human life is transient. It's here one moment and, and gone the next. And in, in these two names, we get a little bit of a picture of some of the things that are coming up. And the story doesn't give us a lot of information about their lives. We're told that they're brothers. We're told their occupations. Cain is a farmer. Abel is a shepherd. And we're told that they bring an offering to God. And what that tells us is, although they are farmers and shepherds, they are also worshippers. That's something of what it means to be human. Humans are hardwired for worship, it's a base reality of human beings. A few weeks ago, we looked um, at a quote from uh, The Atlantic, a writer named Derek Thomas says, some people worship beauty, some worship political identities, others worship their children, but everyone worships something. We all worship something. And in that article, he speaks of workism as one of the most potent new religions competing for our congregants. So we all worship, that is, we all bring our offerings, we all make sacrifices for the things that we ultimately value. And that's what's going on here. Cain and Abel bring their offering to the Lord. See, God delights in the offerings of his people. In the Old Testament, they were physical offerings. In Christ, we celebrate Christ's offering for us. And then now, as Christians, we offer ourselves as living sacrifices. God delights in... The offerings of his people. So Cain and Abel bring their offering, as it were, to God. Cain first, in verse 3, it says, brought some of the fruits of the soil. Some of the fruits of the soil. Abel, we are told, follows suit and offers the firstborn of the flock and, and, and the fat portions of, of the animals. So in verses 4 and 5, we see that these offerings have been brought. And what does God think of them? Well, in verses 4 and 5, it says, the Lord looked on favor, looked with favor on Abel and his offering But on Cain and his offering, he did not look with favour, which begs the question, why? Both offerings are acceptable in the sense in the Old Testament, there's grain offerings and there's there's animal offerings, so it's not as if animal is more important than, than grain. But what's clear is that Cain offered the ordinary. He said he brought some of the fruits of his soil, whereas Abel brought his best, the firstborn, the fat portions. And in, in the Old Testament, the offering is not so much about what you bring, it's about what it reflects. It's, it reflects the heart of the person. And so when Cain comes with, with his ordinary, it reflects his heart. And then when Abel comes with, with his kind of abundant offering, it reflects his heart. And that's why we see that the Lord looks on favor to Abel, because it reflected His heart, and He did not on Cain. You see that kind of in the verse order. It says, um, God pronounces his favor or disfavor on the person before the offering, on Abel and his offering, or not His favor on Cain and his offering. And what's the response? Well Cain is angry. He's angry about this. It says he's he's very angry. His face is is downcast. And again, why is his face downcast? Why is he angry? Well, in ancient Near Eastern religions, the rules of engagement with deities were pretty simple. You would bring your offerings, and the gods would dispense their blessings. Think of it like a a can machine. You, You enter your coins, it spits out the can. In high school, there was a particular machine on the second level that you'd put in the coin, and that sucker would always spit out two cans. It was like Christmas. I can remember in year 10, when it didn't behave itself accordingly, a year 10 student booted it, and then it just started pumping them out. It was like the year of jubilee. It was amazing. <laughs> the principal came up, and we were all sitting there with like about six cans of Coke. Did you buy that? Oh, yeah, 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 yeah. I put my coin in. It just dispensed. And in one sense, that's what the gods were meant to do. You put in minimal effort and you wanted maximum return. But what happens here is that God doesn't operate like that. And Cain was angry. And Cain feels like God hasn't kept up to his end of of the bargain, his end of the exchange. God has kept something from him, his favour. And the real kick in the guts is that his brother gets it. He gets his favour, and so he's angry and he's downcast. But as you read the Bible, and particularly the Old Testament, you know that God is not interested in exchange. He's not like the other small g gods. He's interested in what is is right. So in Hosea, it speaks about this. It says, For I desire, this is God speaking, mercy and not sacrifice, an acknowledgement of God rather than burnt offerings. Or in uh, Amos, it speaks of, of God just detesting their offerings. He doesn't want to hear their songs, but he says, but let justice flow like a river. God wants a right heart and offerings to come from doing what is right, from a right heart with right desires. And although Abel was not perfect, his offering reflected a humble heart. Cain had not done what was right and it reflected a hard heart, an entitled heart because God wasn't keeping up to his end of the bargain. And so Cain is angry. He's downcast. And it's a lovely picture. This is the first interaction outside the garden. And what does God do at that moment? Because he's kind of acting like a a sulking teenager, isn't he? What does God do at that moment? He addresses him. He seeks him out like he does Adam in the garden. He says, why are you angry? Why is your face downcast? And he almost encourages him in there in verse 7. If you do what is right, will you not be accepted? If you do what is right, will you not be accepted? It's almost like you can try again. And he warns him, but if you do not do what is right, sin is crouching at your door. It desires to have you, but you must rule over it. He presents a choice to him to do what is right or to not do what is right. And sin is, is, it desires to have you, but you must rule over it. If you remember in, in chapter 3, it speaks about Eve having a, a desire to, to dominate Adam. And so sin here desires to dominate humanity. And it's an interesting picture. Sin is crouching at your door. It's an imagery of of, of a demon at the door or a a beast of some kind. You know, it it wants to devour you. That's the sole aim. So it's funny, isn't it? Because sin is often portrayed as something just a bit bit naughty, Uh, a chocolate, a, a flirtatious glance, naughty but of not much consequence. Whereas here it's described like a demon, like a beast, seeking to devour you, to take over you. And God says, you must rule over it. There's a choice here. This beast can be fed or you can starve it. It's a choice, it's a warning. What will Cain do with his, his anger? It's not too late in one sense at this point in the story. Cain could humble himself, do all the right thing, and use his anger almost redemptively to, to fight sin, as it were to rule over his sinful desire. But what do we read? Well, in one sense, he he feeds the beast instead at this point. Rather than starves it, he feeds it. And so, in a sense, becomes one. Because look at the very next verse, what happens? Verse 8, very matter-factly, Now Cain said to his brother, Abel, let us go out into the field. And while they were in the field, Cain attacked his brother Abel and killed him. Anger leading to murder. What did Abel do to him? He simply did what was right, from a right heart. So Cain's anger is presumably at God, but because he can't take it out on God, he lashes out. We're told very matter-of-factly that he takes it out on Abel. A famous Anglican bishop, J.C. Ryle, in the 18th century, said this, from the highest degrees of privilege to the lowest depravities of sin, there is but a succession of steps. It's a good quote, isn't it? From the highest degrees of privilege to the lowest depravities of sin, there is but a succession of steps. Resentment and anger here was on a train whose destination was, was murder. Not all resentment leads to murder, but murders start with Resentment. So, how does God respond? Well, we can see in verses 9 to 12. Like in the garden, God introduces his judgment with with a question. The Lord said to Cain, Where is your brother Abel? How does he respond? I don't know, he replied. Am I my my brother's keeper? This is kind of the, the sulking teenager again. It's this kind of whatever moment. Am I my brother's keeper? And and that language, that question is even used today when we want to kind of coldly disassociate ourselves from the responsibilities that we might have for one another. Am I my brother's keeper? But the reality was he he was to be his, his brother's keeper. Humanity was made in God's image to keep the garden, and part of keeping that garden was keeping one another. Yet he'd failed that, and he conceals his sin with indifference. And the Lord directly speaks to him. He says, listen, what have you done? Listen, your brother's blood cries out to me from the ground. Abel, whose name means vapor, is gone like the mists. Gone, but I think it's encouraging here, but not unheard. For his blood cries out from the ground. And There's a side point, but an important one. No, no injustice goes unheard by God. Think of the events of this week. A gross injustice. In a similar way, their blood cries out to me from the ground. No injustice goes unheard by God. Abel's blood cries out and God hears the cry of the helpless. God is a just judge. And so he curses Cain for what? He did. The ground that took in his brother's blood will haunt him for the rest of his days. Life will be difficult. Farming will be difficult and frustrating. He's expelled from the garden. He's sent east, east of Eden, as it were, to be a wanderer. And even at this point, after what Cain did and God kindly meeting him where he's at, God continues in the midst of this to show mercy to him Look at verses 13 to 16. So we've seen God is a just judge. He hears the cry of the helpless. He punishes justly sin, but he's also gracious. Cain's response is, is self-centered here. He says, my punishment is more than I can bear. It's, 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 it's all about his ruined life. It's about his burden. There's not seemingly a, a word of remorse there at all. No hint of repentance. My punishment is more than I can bear. And it's the difference between regret and remorse. So what does he fear? He fears that he will be restless. He fears that he will be pursued. He fears that he will be hunted. So he seems to regret the consequences of his actions, or the unpleasant consequences of his actions, but he seems to show little care or remorse for the act itself. And again, we should, we should, as we read this, I know it's, it's a, a kind of a hyper example in one sense, but in a similar way, often we too, can't we? I certainly do. I can regret the unpleasant consequences of something, but I might not actually be sorry for it, truly remorseful or repentful. See, he was deserving of no kindness. But what does God do here? Even in the midst of his kind of sulking Well, God is merciful to him and protects him. He gives him a mark, the mark of Cain. There's kind of a lot of ink spilt about what that mark is. Some think a tattoo, some think some kind of um, mark on the body. Uh, The point is that the mark was there to protect Cain from harm and from others. And more than that, he not only protects him, but he actually blesses him. We we're to read on in the, in the verses, he blesses him with a wife and children and his descendants even seem to prosper. We're told that they advance technology and culture. But for all the technological advancement, what we see with Cain and his descendants is that you can't change the human heart. Well, right towards the end of this chapter, we read of his descendant Lamech, and what does he do? He, he murders murders men for for harming him, his pride is hurt and he lashes out in a similar kind of Cain-like anger. Cain's anger was directed towards God because something was getting in the way of his satisfaction. Cain was angry. He he resented the fact that he was laid bare and and, and exposed and vulnerable. He resented the fact that he felt out of control. And he fed his resentment, his anger, and it ended eating him up. Well, as we think about how this story is fulfilled in Jesus and, and we need to think through you know, what kind of implications we can draw for ourselves, I think it's, it's important to draw attention that we're, 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 literally, we're literally one generation outside of the garden and this is the state of play. We've got resentment, we've got anger, we've got violence, we've got murder. And I think the person that we should identify with here is, is Cain, because in that sense, we, we, bear, we bear the family likeness. Now, we might not be the same in degree, but we're the same in kind. We may not have murdered, but we have been given to resentment and anger. And as we come to the New Testament... It's interesting, isn't it? Jesus ups the stakes, right? In Matthew 5, he says, You have heard it that was said to people long ago, You shall not murder, and anyone who murders will be subject to judgment. But I tell you, anyone who is angry with a brother or sister will be subject to judgment. Anyone who says, You fool, will be in danger of the fire of hell. It's a a sobering thought, isn't it? Maybe different in degree, but same in kind. The reality is sin dominates everything. The reality is we, like, like Cain, rather than ruling over the beast, we've fed the beast and indulged anger and resentment. Like Cain, we are helpless but for the grace of God. And the wonderful picture we get here is that God is gracious even in the midst of, of the mess. He's the hero of this story, as it were. And I think even in this passage, you see hope in this text. God does not give up on humanity. If we read to the end of the chapter, after outlining Cain's family, we read these words in verse 25. Adam made love to his wife again, and she gave birth to a son and named him Seth, saying, God has granted me another child in place of Abel since Cain killed him. Seth also had a son, and he named him Enosh. And at that time, people began to call on the name of the Lord. As you read through Genesis, there's there's these little glimmers of hope. So in chapter three, there was a glimmer of hope that there was one who would one day rise up to crush the head of the serpent. And then in this chapter, you see the glimmer of hope that 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 seed line, as it were, is following through Seth and Enosh. And it'll go through the family line of Noah. And the genealogy will stretch right forward to go to the Lord Jesus himself. So there's hope in the text. It's not a full picture of everything that's there, but it's the hope that we're meant to hang on to, that there is one coming who, unlike Cain, will not be dominated by sin, but will dominate sin once and for all. There's one coming. And at that time, they began to call on the name of the Lord. And Paul echoes that in Romans 10, where he says, everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. So in Genesis we see that salvation is promised. There's a a line of hope, a seed of hope, of one that was coming to crush the head of the serpent, to to overturn, to dominate sin. And that one was Jesus, and everyone who calls on his name will be saved. And Jesus does what Cain should have done, where Cain coldly responds, "Am am I my brother's keeper? Paul shows us how Jesus is a true keeper of his brothers and sisters. In Romans 5 he writes, but God demonstrates his own love for us in this. While we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Cain shed the blood of his brother, but Jesus shed his blood on the cross for those who were still sinners, who were God's enemies. And unlike Abel, whose blood cries out for justice, Jesus' blood cries out as satisfaction of justice and for our justification. Paul continues in Romans 5, Since we've been justified now by his blood, how much more shall we be saved from God's wrath through him? This was the perfect offering to experience God's favour in the Lord Jesus. To borrow the words from the prayer of Approach in the Anglican communion service, it says, The Father, in love and mercy, You gave your only son, Jesus Christ, to die on the cross to save us. By this offering of himself, once for all time, Jesus made the perfect, complete sacrifice for the sins of the whole world, satisfying your demands in full. This glimmer of hope that we see comes to full fruition in both the offering, the shed blood of Jesus being the true brother for us who dominated sin so that it would dominate us no more. It's wonderful news. And so what's the rule for life as we, as we come to think about it? I think the first thing we can take is life outside the garden is messy. I don't think I probably need to persuade anyone of that. It's messy. And addressing resentment is serious because, as we've seen in, in this story of where it can lead and what it does to us, resentment and, and anger, it just eats us alive, doesn't it? So so what's the good news that we can take away? What's the the rule for life and living? See, the first stop on the train to murder is anger. But along the way, there's jealousy, discontent, envy, each eating away at us. So how does this story, how it's fulfilled in Christ, help us? C.S. Lewis said in, in Surprised by Joy, he says, the surest means of disarming anger or a lust is to turn your attention from the girl or the insult and start examining the passion itself. The surest means of disarming an anger or a lust is to turn attention from the girl or the insult and then start examining the passion itself. So as we think about you know, what makes us angry when we nurture resentment, what, what, it, what, it, what is that? As we interrogate that a little, it's, it's uncomfortable and it requires honest reflection and and an acknowledgement of what it is doing us. And I thought it could just be helpful to look at at this story. It won't be the whole picture about resentment, and there's many things that we should do on the back of it, but some reflections from this story of, of Cain and Abel. The first one is Cain resented that something was getting in the way of his satisfaction. Cain resented that something was getting in the way of his satisfaction. Something was getting in the way of what he felt entitled to what he felt entitled to. Has that ever happened to you? It's happened to me. Have you ever harbored resentment or been angry because because something has got in the way of of something that I feel rightly belongs to me? Could be at work, It might be a promotion, it might be a pay rise, it might be recognition Think about it in, in relationships. We, we, we expect to be treated a certain way, and when things don't go the way that we anticipate them, what do we do? We, we're angry, and that works its way out inside us. Or we can be resentful at our circumstances. We have certain expectations that we should, we should expect health. We should expect a, a comfortable life. We should expect a life partner. We should expect all kinds of things. But these expectations kind of become entitlements. And when we don't get them, we can get angry. We can get resentful. We get resentful to others because they've got these things or we can get angry or resentful because we we think others have kept these things from us. We can be resentful towards God because we feel like he has kept these things from us. When our satisfaction is threatened, we get angry and we can nurture resentment. And so at this early point, if we, if we can see what leads to us nurturing resentment and we can see the path that that train goes on, well, how do we, how do we counter it? What's an antidote to it? Well, I think one of them is, is gratitude. See, if we think about entitlement before God we quickly realise the great debt owed on our part for our sin. And so if we were actually to think about what is fair and what we're entitled to, it's a pretty grim picture. And this should truly humble us and make us a thankful people. We were God's enemies, but like Cain, God met us in our mess, in grace, in Jesus' deserving punishment, we're called friends. We're forgiven. We're made right. We're given his spirit. We're given blessings. And so we should be a people marked by, by gratitude. I remember a few years ago, a long time ago, actually, when we were first married, I, um, I, was, I was a bit down. And um, I remember speaking to an older saint at the church where we were at. And he he told me very matter-of-factly to go away and every morning thank God for 20 things and then come back to me. And it, it was just such an interesting exercise in the sense that in the midst of my circumstances I'd become so consumed with myself that, you know, as you begin to just rattle through thank you for today, thank you for my bed, thank you for the roof, thank you for my family, thank you for Weetabix. Yeah. <laughs> As you see those things, you, you begin to come out of yourself and you see the overflow of God's generosity, but then you think about what we're actually entitled to. We're God's enemies, but in Christ, he's brought us near as we start to thank God for what he's done for us in the Lord Jesus, it not only takes us out of ourselves and frees us from resentment somewhat, but it can overflow in charity towards others. We have been granted this kindness, therefore we are able to grant kindness to others. It can even help us to think about forgiveness. Now, forgiveness is is hard work, but for those who are forgiven... Or we can forgive, and we're going to say the Lord's Prayer later. And and part of that picture is forgive us our sins as we forgive those. And the wonderful picture there is that God forgives us, and in gratitude to that, we can even forgive others. Now, there's not enough time to go into that, and it can be tricky, and we can be hurt and, and a victim in real circumstances. But gratitude helps us, it resources us in ways to deal with our anger and resentment and to forgive. Secondly, and, and more succinctly, Cain resented being exposed and vulnerable. See, he was exposed and he was, he was highly vulnerable at that point. He'd been called out, as it were. God had called him out, but at that moment he could have repented and changed. God gave him the choice, but at that moment, what does he do? He, he hardens, he doubles down He lies. He murders and denies. And I don't know about you, but in in those moments of of anger, and when we we want to kind of fester and nurture our resentments, when we've been called out, perhaps been caught red-handed, we've not done what is right or best. You feel exposed. You feel vulnerable. You feel fearful in one sense. What do you do? Our instinct so often, isn't it, is to double down. We can resent when our hearts are exposed to all their ugliness. Rather than humble ourselves, our tendency is, is to conceal what we've done rather than to confess. But perhaps in concealing it in, you know, and, and that leading to doubling down, we give power to, to sin and to resentment in our life. But again, there, there is great freedom in, in confession there's, there's great freedom that comes from true repentance. And, and as Cain is met with God's grace, so we are met more abundantly in Christ by grace. There is great freedom in, in naming and exposing our resentment in order to disempower it and to remember what God has done for us. And, and part of that picture might be to do that with one another. to to find a mature good friend. You can go there with them. You can kind of name the ugliness. And they're not going to run away from you. And let them lead you to grace in Christ. And ask them, okay, well, help me. What would this look like to honour Jesus going forward and to love this other person? And finally, we're to fight resentment. Passage here, James 4, talks about what causes fights and quarrels among you. Don't they come from the desires that battle within you? Desire in the New Testament, is not necessarily a negative work, but it's the object of desire where it gets all skewed. Anger can be a good thing if it's used for good purposes, but when anger attaches itself to the wrong object, it can lead to all kinds of devastation. When resentment attaches itself to things, it can lead to devastation. Sin desires us but here we read in Genesis that we are to rule over it. That was God's word to Cain. How much more true of that is, is that true of us in, in Christ? See, Cain fed rather than starved the beast. So we should think too, how can, we, how can we not feed those desires? But how can we starve them so that its power over us becomes weaker? There's a great film, The Beautiful Mind. I don't know if you've seen it. Russell Crowe plays a mathematician And he's diagnosed with schizophrenia and told that several of his his lifelong friends are actually not real. And he genuinely misses talking to them. But he knows that he must stamp out all delusions in order to move towards health. So he simply starts by choosing to ignore them. He calls it a diet of the mind. And as he does, they gradually recede in their influence over him. Even at the end of his life, he still has these delusions, but they have lost their destructive power over him. And a similar principle worked out in our struggle against sin or with resentment. The more we indulge it, the more it gains its grip over us. But as with any addiction or animal, the less you feed it, the weaker it becomes. James continues in the passage to say, Submit to God, resist the devil, and he will flee from you. In one sense, we can help each other choose to not acknowledge our, our sinful desires, to nurture anger that leads to devastation or resentment, but to starve those affections so that they grow, they grow weaker. And the, the, the Bible reminds us to do that quickly and to help each other do that. See, resentment can dominate our work lives, our home lives, our circumstances, But the good news of the gospel is that it need not. It need not. So may God, by his spirit, grant us gratitude, humility, and the desire to fight our resentment. Amen. He's going to pray.